Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 610, air date May 7th, 2020. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. I have a um, the amazing honor and pleasure of, of with Anna Marie uh, Clement and Brian Clement, uh, who are the directors of an amazing institute down in Hippocrates. I mean, in, in, in uh, Florida called Hippocrates. My dad actually went there and had an amazing healing experience. So we're gonna be talking to them about my journey to health, the immune system, um, and we're just gonna be having a great time. So Brian, uh, we can start whenever you're ready. And Brian Clement, Hippocrates Health Institute. So we're happy to be with you once again this week. And as always, we're going to bring you into areas of thought hopefully feelings and change that you may not hear on the wires and the mainstream and the television that you're gawking at. And today we have Dr. Shiva. Dr. Shiva has an extraordinary background. Uh, when he was just a young man, he found himself completely enchanted with science and mathematics. And his parents acknowledged that and saw that and as Dr. Shiva said we got to know his dad just a few years ago when he came through the Hippocrates program they sent him off to the NYU summer camp for mathematics and I think that must have started a whole new understanding of what is possible later he moved on and went to MIT and for the listeners if you don't want the Massachusetts Institute of Technology means it's very difficult to get in there. Now, matter of fact, that was in our neighborhood. Hippocrates used to be in Boston, about six minutes away from MIT. We used to go in and out and spend a lot of time there. But so he didn't get one degree. He uh, Somehow he, he accumulated four degrees there. Uh, one degree is an amazing thing. And he actually became something that we have to describe to him. I'm going to let Dr. Shiva describe it to you, a biological or a bioengineer. Welcome with us today, Dr. Shiva. Great to be here, Brian. Great to be here, both of you. And I thank also to Lauren for organizing this. And But it's a pleasure to be here with you and Anna Marie. As you mentioned, Brian, my dad, uh, you know, I've been a, a proponent of natural medicine for many, many years. I was traveling back and forth between California and I saw my dad have some significant, you know, he wasn't taking care of his body. So I remember sending him down there because I would have taken care of him. You guys did an amazing job down there. So I want to just thank you for what, how you helped my dad. We appreciate it. He was, he was very adherent and smart and he followed through and that's what it takes. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us what happened to you. Here you are. Most kids are out playing ball and running around having fun. And you're sitting there counting numbers. Tell me why that happened and why you think that happened. Well, Brian, actually, I just, you know, to give you give you an idea, you know, I was brought up in a family where uh, it wasn't just about counting numbers. I wasn't a nerd. I actually played varsity baseball, uh, played varsity soccer, was on a division. You, you're, I think you're from New Jersey. So I grew up in um, Patterson and then in Clifton and then in Persephone and then Livingston. Livingston was a division three, one of the top school systems, not only from a school standpoint, but also from an athletic standpoint. And, you know, we won, we were undefeated in soccer and also in baseball. Um, so it's a pretty, so, so just to give you that idea, we have unfortunately uh, in this country, try to pigeonhole people. If you're an athlete, you, you must be 
sort of dumb. And if you're smart, you can't throw a ball. Uh, but but I just want to let people know um, my parents were very, very my my dad in particular about, um, you know, that mind, body and soul. It was something sort of brought to me up from when I was a, was a kid growing up in India. Came over from India when you were just seven, and uh, you know I spent time. It's called Mumbai now, but it was Bombay. Uh, the Prime Minister brought Ann Wigmore, who you met years ago, and, and myself over there for what they call the National Health Program. We mm. spent two months going from city to city and putting them on the the program, Hippocrates program. We had a team of medical doctors, uh, actually led by this extraordinary Dr. Date when he was at Oxford, created a form of cardiovascular surgery. Uh, the cardio doctors tell me they're still using much of that today. So it, Bombay was an amazing city. And do you recall it when you were little before you came? Yeah, definitely. So I, I think you asked my journey. So I grew up in Bombay and I grew up in two worlds in India, Brian. So all of these memories are extremely, very vibrant in me. You know, it was my formative year. So I grew up in uh, uh, Bombay, as you may know, uh, is a very, it's sort of New York on steroids in some sense. It's a melting pot of cultures. It, you, you, you see sort of uh, 2000 years in front of you in some sense, right? So it's not only time and space and religion and caste and languages, it's very rich, rich, you know, in that sense. But in Bombay, not only did I grow up in the city, but I also grew up in a neighborhood where the backwoods of my uh, place that I lived in was like a jungle literally snakes. And I mean, I can't even believe that I went, walked in there and uh, the, my next door neighbor ended up becoming a veterinarian, but it was just rich. It was like you were at something out of Jungle Book. So I grew up in that world. And in the summers, or at least at least a third of my life, I spent in a deep South Indian village. Uh, if you've been there, they're completely different. Most Indians don't even go to these villages. They, you know, they sort of look down upon them. They see themselves as more sophisticated saying in the cities, but that was my dad's grandmother, my, my dad's mother. Uh, my grandmother, and in that village, they were. No, 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 it's it's in it's in a town. Someone just said hello from Rajapalayam. It's in Madurai, right? So it's in farther south India, um, in the district of Rajapalayam. But my grandparents were essentially poor indigenous farmers. They grew some uh, cotton, they grew rice, and they grew coconuts. So, but the interesting thing was, my grandmother, separate from being uh, a farmer, with my great grandfather remember vividly and all of them practice you know get into this traditional systems of medicine she was also the village healer every village in those days you know you didn't have a medical doctor you had typically a woman who was a local healer and the system of medicine that they had in india there was sort of two systems one was practiced in the north which people may know here called ayurveda but actually the much more extensive one was called siddha s-i-d-d-h-a and also indigenous medicine. So my grandmother picked up all this stuff and she was a village healer. So on weekends, you know, what I observed was, you know, 30, 40 people would line up at her house. She would observe their face. Um, you know, there's an ancient Indian technique called Samudrika Lakshanam. Lakshanam means face. Uh, Samudrika means analysis. And based on analysis of the face, she would figure out their particular state. And then she would figure out their dysfunction. And then for that individual, uh, Anna Marie and Brian, she would figure out the right modalities. It could be herbs, it could be some massage, it could be a particular adjustment, right? It could be prayer, it could be meditation, right? But the, each person was treated individually. And a lot of people brought their babies and, and children because she would also uh, teach mothers how to hold the baby, right? I mean, there's all these very, very simple, simple techniques. 
So I saw this woman with no degrees, tattoos all over her arms, who chewed tobacco, had learned all these things, who was a farmer by day, you know, 16 hours. But on the weekend, she was a village healer. I saw her incredibly do amazing feats. So that's what got me inspired in studying medicine, Brian. It was this very, in this village, by the way, there's no electricity, no running water. Uh, it was, you were living in a very, very pure environment. So that was, so I had two lives even within India, Brian, the city of Bombay, sort of this jungle, and then this deep South Indian village, uh, which are one of the most beautiful places. I, I can't tell you how extraordinarily uh, peaceful and just vibrant there, just the colors. Uh, I mean, you talk about organic food and all that. You didn't even have to talk about organic food. Everything was always organic. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the unbelievable history of India, as you said, when you're living within a 2,000-year-old culture and structures, some of those buildings were 2,000 years old. There's something that we here in the United States and even in Europe were missing. We don't have that dramatic commitment to life and the gratitude and the respect as your grandmother and many others have. Yeah, I mean, Brian, what's interesting is I also grew up in this very deeply spiritual background. I don't know if my dad shared this with you. He had actually grown up in Burma. So in the early 18, late 1800s, 1900s, people would go to Burma to make their fortune. My great grandfather, who I remember very well, he lived up to 100 plus. He used to work out in the fields until his late 90s. But um, he left India as a indentured servant. You know, he asked his brother for some money as a 13 year old, 12, 13 year old his brother didn't have it. So he went on, the, you know, it was sort of worse than slavery in some sense because you had to work off your bond. So he went to Burma. He apparently worked so hard on the ship that the captain of the ship said, you know, you're an extraordinary human being. I'm going to relieve you of your bond. He ended up in Burma. That's when my grandfather was born. My father was born there. And then after World War II, they made, you know, their fortune and then lost everything. So they came back with nothing back to that small village. But it, the reason I share that story was when my dad was in Burma, Burma was known for two things, uh, Buddhism and cobras. Okay. Um, so my dad was the first son and his, his mother and what had not produced in, in those days, a woman was supposed to produce a lot of children. And so he, because his mother, I think he was five had not produced any more kids or, you know, get, you know, didn't have a brother or sister. They were going to marry someone. This is sort of unfortunate to my grandfather to another woman. So my dad got very upset and him and his mother went to all these Buddhist temples, you know, praying. Eventually, my dad was given a coin from a Buddhist priest, and he said, look, meditate on this, and what on this day, December 2nd, uh, you'll have a brother born to you. So my dad became a very, very uh, devoted prayer and, and practitioner of meditation. In fact, uh, his brother was born on that day. And then my dad continued meditating. By the time he was 12, he used to give holy ash, and he was healing people, and, his grand and my grandparents stopped him because they thought he'd become a sannyasi and leave. So, so I was brought up in this very interesting tradition with all the deities from Jesus to all the great spirits, you know, this, and pictures from my grandmother's home. She always used to do weekly pujas and she would in fact go into trances herself, channel different spirits. To me, this was all normal, but separate from the medical stuff, I grew up in this very other world too, of uh, this deep reverence for God and spirit. And also this acknowledgement that uh, we were connected to something larger than us. So when my uncle, that uncle who's my set, my father's second brother, my father's brother became a, a surgeon, he came for blessings for my grandmother. And she said, 
uh, will you help anyone if they come to you with no money? Only then will I give you blessings, which means medicine was not supposed to be a money-making venture, which my grandfather obviously did. And then she gave us blessings. So I grew up in this rich tradition, not only of these traditional healing modalities, but this whole reverence to what life was about, as you were referring to. And, you know, it, it was a devotion not too many years ago, and people felt they were called to it. And, you know, what you're speaking about, uh, for many of the listeners, they completely resonate with this. And others, this is fine, uh, because we've been told, as you pointed out a moment ago, we compartmentalize things in our culture. You know, if you're good in math, you're not open spiritually, or you're not an athlete. And I think... You know, we are born to be everything at all times to all people. And living that way gives you such infinite potential that there's nothing that stops you. And so, boy, what a family you grew up in. I can't quite say it was the same in the New York area where I grew up. <laughs> well, well, Brian, what was interesting was that when I go back to India, right, I meet people in the cities. It's interesting. They don't want to go to the villages. To me, that's where I first go. And in fact, these the villages were, um, you know, there was none of this electrical noise or any of that, right? So when you went to bed at night, I mean, we all slept on the floor, right? There was no really beds or on the roof of the house um, the earth, or, or the earth. My, my aunt lived in a small 10 foot by 10 foot hut. Across my parents and my grandparents' place was a small place where they kept the cows. And there was, every house always had a moringai tree, you know, the the... The moringai tree, for those of you who don't know, is now, I think even the, the, the big World Health Organization considers like one of the most important trees because it gives so much nutrition. Um, the leaves and the nutrients from the moringai tree can be used. We, we said moringai in Tamil, right? That's where the word actually comes from. So, yeah, yeah, moringai is a Tamil word. M-O-R, in, in fact, there are many words you'll find in the English language Tamil is the oldest language in the world. It is it predates Greek and Latin. In fact, uh, Yale, about several years ago, made Tamil a classic language next to Latin and Greek. There is more poetry in Tamil than any other language. It's unfortunate because the, the people of India, if you look at it, there was an indigenous people there called the Dravidians or the Shaivites long before the Aryan invasion took over. And those are the people of, and they spoke... Uh, Tamil. And then you, what you find is that those people when the invasion took place were pushed down to the south. Siddha was the tradition that was practiced. Siddha was a five-part system of health and healing. It involved martial arts. It involved the use of micro doses of heavy metals, which came from, you know, basmas. Uh, it involved yoga. It involved meditation. And it involved, you know, the use of herbs, etc. Ayurveda was a subset of that. It's unfortunate because of, frankly, the racism within India Siddha was subsumed, Tamil wasn't given as preeminence, but there are about 100,000 scrolls written in Tamil, which uh, have all these formulations. The mythology goes that Lord Shiva uh, gave the knowledge of medicine to his wife, Parvati, who then transmitted it telepathically to their son, uh, Karthikan. If you, if you know, everyone's probably seen the elephant god in India. There's another god also in India known as Karthikan, who's the son of Ganesh, which is the elephant god. But Ganesh is known as a god of medicine and the god of war. Because in the Indian healing system, a Vaidhir was not some sort of 
you know, Namby Pamby, new age person who was just into medicine. It was also the warrior who went to war against death. So Vaidhir means fight healer and warrior. It's, it's two terms. So that is sort of the back end tradition that I grew up in. And it's, and I wanted to share that with the audience because Siddha does not get the preeminence because most of the people who came to the United States were Brahmins. You have to understand that I was also a very, very inspired politically because we were considered low caste untouchables, Brian and Anna Maria. Okay. So I experienced all this sort of, you know, abhorrent nonsense growing up where I wouldn't be allowed into people's homes. I had to stand outside, get water in a different cup um, as a child. And that made me also very attuned to politics. So politics and medicine in a very weird way, what is what I was driven by, Brian, They're trying to, and these were both political systems and medical systems. And as you say, we tend to silo everything in Western traditional, you know, and this is sort of this reductionist model. You can't be a spiritual person. You can't be an athlete and someone smart. You have to be this or a nerd or someone who's a blonde who has to be segregated into only looking good, right? We, we, or, or if a nerd, you have to wear glasses and you have to have a beard with a pocket protector, then you can invent email, not a kid from New Jersey, right? No, seriously, this is a different form of racial segregation. It's, a, it's the ultimate form of segregation that gets done. Well, your, your childhood definitely made you flexible. And, you know, when you look at India, it was heavy, exploded, exploited for some time. And, but then people realized we need to have sacred forests, sacred water sources. And they really did. Because the, and the idea is that we're just caretakers. We're, we don't own this yeah. land. We don't own it. Yeah, Anna Maria, it's very interesting you say the issue of ownership. So in Tamil, there's rarely do you ever say my. So if someone comes to your home, you you, you can say yenga vida gavanga, which means yenga means our house. Everything was always our. And it's an interesting thing because um, the, the Dravidian system actually goes back to hunter-gatherer, it actually pre, it was all matriarchal culture. In fact, there's no concept in the South Indian of last names. So when our parents came, when my parents came here in 1970, I literally came here on my seventh birthday, left India on my seventh birthday. Um, when we came here, my, uh, when I used to go to school, they say, what's your last name? And my name was Shiva, right? Short for Shivapati, but Shiva. And well, we had to make up a last name because in, 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 so we took my dad's first name, Ayadure, and became, but in, in the Indian traditional systems, the origin always went back uh, matriarchically. In fact, the traditional cultures were matriarchal, Mother Earth, the mother. And uh, when we created property uh, is when we created, so it's a whole discussion, but the concept of our was always there. You rarely said, come to my home. It was our home. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, really... What has happened to us? I mean, my God. Yeah, what went wrong? What uh, a, lot, a lot went wrong. <laughs> you know, people are so insecure, without values, without purpose, without fulfillment, without passion, that we literally feel we can replace it with ownership and control and manipulation. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening as we speak now. We're going to get back to that in a minute. So we're going to go to a break now and get back with Dr. Shiva. Speak to the listening audience all over the world and here in the United States about what may be possible once we liberate ourselves from all of the programming, the patterns, and the insanity we call modern living. Be right back. Thanks, Brian. I'll just keep talking to my audience here if that's okay with you.
Okay, thank you. Um, so anyway, everyone, that's Brian Clement and Anna Marie, his wife, right? Anna Marie, yes. <laughs> is that okay? I, I don't want to say his wife, but you're both a loving uh, couple, <laughs> husband and wife, or you're his, you're his husband <laughs> ownership. Um, and uh, Brian and Anna Marie run an amazing center down in Florida, which uh, is Hippocrates, which is really based on raw natural foods. You know, I was a raw foodist for many years. Um, and then I had to start introducing other things, but it was my personal uh, choices that I made. But uh, uh, Hippocrates is an amazing institute, uh, and Brian and Emery are amazing educators. For me, uh, what's what's profoundly great about talking to both of you is I've wanted to talk to both of you guys for many, many years. And, um, and I also, I think hopefully we'll get into wanting to do research with both of you because um, my journey into health was also trying to uncover and explain to the Western audience, how was this that my grandmother was able to heal, Brian uh, and Anna Maria? What was those technologies? The West always wants things explained. Um, it's not through intuition, that's okay. And so that resulted in my journey to creating uh, a, a very cool educational model called Systems Health, which came out of my Fulbright. Hopefully after the break, we'll talk about that. And then Cytosolve, which is a technology that allows us to model molecular mechanisms using computers so we can actually you know educate the western world on why this stuff works because they think in the worlds of genes and proteins and molecules they sort of don't understand energy right or, right right so are we back so everyone on instagram uh facebook world youtube we're talking with anna marie and brian clement um, from Hippocrates, and it's a really good discussion. We're going to we're talking about my journey to health and well-being, and also we're going to talk about the immune system and what's going on. And um, we're going to be doing this for another about half an hour to an hour. Welcome, everyone. This is Health, Happiness, and Healing with Anna Maria and Brian Clement, Hippocrates Health Institute. All over the world, we send you love, support, mm. and hope that you feel your heart and understand that you're all complete, you're whole, and you're still there. Today we have Dr. Shiva on the first segment. We spoke about his childhood, which is unique to most of us listening. He grew up in a family of what we call in our part of the world shamans, people who were inherently and natural healers. And one of the things Dr. Shiva said is something I often explain to people. Men were pretty much not involved with healing until recent time. It was women. And these people were born, and the villagers or the people in the town sort of knew that was their gift. Uh, nobody anointed them, nor did they get a degree. And they had this deep connection with not only nature, but the universe. And they were able to look at a person and do an analysis, and today we unfortunately call it diagnosis, and rather than say, here's the pill, here's the prescription, they said, you may need to rest your mind and go quietly and pray. You may need to go and get your bones adjusted. You may need to go and change radically the way you're eating. And uh, as a little boy, Dr. Shiva saw this and lived it. This was his family. So he thought this is perfectly normal. Is Father went on and moved to Burma, and I knew this, you know, 
Burmanese were considered sort of the elite in, in this part of the world. And uh, his brother became a doctor and went back to grandmom. And grandmom said, I will not bless you. I will not support you unless you're willing to practice with everyone. If they don't have money, if they're poor, if they're of a different caste. Uh, Dr. Shiva was of the low class, as we say. And this is, I didn't realize until you just explained it to me, although I know a lot about the Indian culture, that this is where the caste system came from. And so you said when the Anglos came in, uh, the original people and, and the original language that Yale just designated as a fundamental, a primary language. Yeah, classic language, a classic language. That's amazing to me, you said it has. So the original language, the way that humans communicated with one another, you said it has more poetry in it than all other languages. Isn't yeah, that? well, what's what's interesting about Tamil, there's so many words. Have you heard the word uh, catamaran? Well, catamaran comes from Tamil. It means katta maram. Katta means two trees tied together. Maram means trees. Katta maram, okay? Pariah is a term that comes from Tamil. So what happens is because of, frankly, the unfortunate, you know, everyone thinks everything goes to Latin and Greek, Tamil is left out of this equation. So when, when Yale decided to designate Tamil as a classic language, it's a pretty interesting thing. They find out the amount of literature that's written in it. So there's more love poetry, as, you, as I shared with you, written in Tamil than any other language. And literature, I mean, the literature is, there's sort of two versions of Tamil. I mean, there's when they, there's the Shakespearean literature, just beautiful. The other pieces, Anna-Marie Mike, when they wrote medicinal treatments, it's quite extraordinary. They wrote them on palm leaves in poetry, which was the encryption. And there was two, so you had to understand poetry the denotational and the connotation to decipher it. So they have treatments in there and how to release, let's say, certain fluids from your pineal gland, right? To support enlightenment. Well, certain rhythmic wording that would literally open up the pineal gland, which is your connection to consciousness, isn't it? Right. In fact, the formulations, because they were concerned that they didn't want, they were concerned that, you know, evil people would steal some of these formulations, use them for misdeeds. So even the transfer of knowledge was you had to achieve a certain level of consciousness. So, so it's a very interesting thing. So in the Indian system, which is a, when you look at yoga and meditation, this is something I think I, I've wanted to share with the Western audience. Yoga and meditation were the end process of actually being a good human being. So when, you, when a yogi took you on or a guru took you on, first, you know, he would engage you to do housework, cleaning, you know, build something. Um, you know, sweat, work hard, follow certain disciplines. That went on for 10 years. After that, you were taught yoga and postures, literally a meditation within less than an hour. What we've done is we've also, in some ways, hurt the yoga model. So you have people doing poses, and I call them sort of <laughs> fascists in yoga pants now, okay? They're narcissists, They, you know, and I see this in the yoga community. They actually have lost the true understanding, you know, my... The goal of yoga was union with oneself. It was not something you did to prove how cool you were at the end of it. Blissy, nice hard bodies. That's I what they know. Want. <laughs> you know it, it, this, is, this is provoke some thought in me. Let's discuss this, Dr. Shiva. So we, of course, in the West, and the elitism that we all think is our birthright, look down at our ancestry uh, and 
think about, let's just isolate this one conversation we're having. Here is the beginning of what we call civilization, and these people understand these things. And when we speak about it today, it either sounds provocative, insane, mm-hmm. or enlightened. I mean, it's so unique to, to, to people listening out there today that our ancestors were more civilized than we were, more conscious, more connected than we are. And don't you think that's why we're all so sick today? Yeah, I mean, Brian, it's interesting you say that. You know, the notion of how you express emotion or this or that is so constrained that I think when I when I first came here, my dad said, you know, we never even heard what a therapist was or a psychiatrist. It blew our minds. And I, I remember first time going to a nursing home. That blew my mind. I, I, I couldn't believe that they put people away into these places. I mean, the whole thing sort of freaked me out. Yeah. yeah, it's a sin of aging. And, you know, um, so these things were, it, it's almost dehumanizing in many ways, you know? So, I mean, I mean, this, this is a whole cultural perspective, but one of the things was, as a guy who grew up here, it's dehumanizing, it's wrong, and we shouldn't accept it. Yeah. So, so I, I remember, uh, uh, th- that phenomenon is like my first touch with the culture here. And the other thing that was fascinating was that I noticed that, uh, that people had to go to psychiatrists for friends. And me and my parents would talk about this, like the concept, you were, you were healed by social connections. And when this coronavirus thing came, I talked about this, that there's more than enough data, a 1988 landmark study that was done you know, here, and then uh, a, a recent study that when you socially isolate people, when you disconnect people, the level, the detriment to that is worse than smoking, worse than high blood pressure, worse than obesity, and you lower the immune system, your, your body literally at the genetic level produces l- uh, less antivirals. You know, you increase inflammatory response. So forget food and all of that, but the connection of one human being to other, the love, knowing that you have someone who, who, who loves you and cares for you. And that's what I had with my grandparents. And, you know, when I left India, Brian, you know, and I came back in 1975, uh, my other grandmother was dying and I came back and I went to that village and I remember leaving there and here were my grandparents crying at the radio, at the train station, you know, barefooted, you know, and I realized how much these people loved me, how much they'd given me and that how parasitic it would be if I didn't do something with my life, Brian. And that really, that instance, and I can still see it leaving that caboose train, you know, with my grandparents out there, put me on this trajectory, that young kid to decide like I had to work hard, I would have to do something because I was gonna get so much from the United States. And then there was my aunt living in a small little, you know, 10 foot by 10 foot hut, how little they had in the extraordinary love and connection they had. And by the way, these people weren't like, you know, the namby pampy, they would get angry, they would express their anger at injustice. And we've done this thing in the society that if you speak out, oh, you know, uh, your tone or et cetera, people have forgotten connection to their own inner self. So people have given up their right to fight they uh, accept things uh, easily. You know, everyone's running around wearing masks all day now, right? It's, it's quite extraordinary. People have lost, uh, but the good news is it's not everyone. Uh, what I find is, Brian, working people, people who create things are connected to the earth, they still have that juice in them. But the people who are disconnected from that, 
you know, it's quite extraordinary to watch at physiologically and biochemically wise. I think these people are actually uh, detached from their emotions. There's um, yeah. and, and, you know, I think people have to remind themselves that the way medicine is done now is not more than 100 or a little bit plus years. Before that, it was natural medicine. And people brought it from India, from Europe. They brought this medicine. And then suddenly, it wasn't worth anything. And you had to be a member of the American Medical Association, or, or you could not practice medicine. You know, Dr. Shiva, you said something. Let's not skip over it. Uh, it's incredibly powerful when you look at the data. Uh, what you were just referring to is a study that was done in New England, and it was the no question oh, and Brigham Young, where they looked at aging and they looked at what happened to people and, and life expectancies. If you are not social, if you don't have love, if you don't have support, if you don't have family, if you don't have friends, you die 15 years. You know this, but yep. let's tell the listeners, 15 years sooner than you would if you had that relationship and socialization. That's like smoking two to three packs of cigarettes a day. Brigham's Young said... Yeah, that if you have uh, a friend, let's say four, at least four really good friends, you'll live five, six years. After 65. <laughs> yeah, After 65. yeah I, I, and I think this is profoundly important because when, you're, when I grew up in that village, you would walk down the street at two in the morning barefooted people would invite you to their home make you some chai tea right uh you were, it was just a, a love that's all i can tell you and you never felt someone was going to hurt you and i cannot tell you how much i'm connected to that and the same thing was believe it or not when i grew up in some of the working class when, towns in new jersey everyday working people still do work have a reverence for that the people who move money around, bankers and lawyers and uh, people who manipulate other people, the lawyers and lobbyists, these people have no reverence for life. Or for that matter, Hollywood celebrities, frankly. Okay? Who let's, let's really speak. You're saying something that we need to talk about. So let's go slower and let everyone listening really get what you're saying. That the people that we revere, the people that are in power, the people that literally manipulate and control everything on the planet are people who don't take responsibility, are not connected to anything, including themselves, and literally, we've allowed this to happen. Right. And people who have respect and gratitude and the working class and your indigenous, wonderful, beautiful family who come from a place of love, love is the power. We've given it away. and. We can say we were naive and innocent. Maybe we're godly and pure, and maybe the others are not evil. They're lost. And how do we change that? How do we bring the lost people back in? Are they willing to get rid of the matter-based thinking, the material thinking they have, and release the real power from them themselves, their hearts and their souls? How do we do that, Dr. Shiva? Well, Brian, that's been my journey to really uh, interconnect that. And, you know, I'm running for U.S. Senate. And the three words that describe our campaign are truth, freedom, and health. Truth, freedom, and health. Truth, freedom, and health. And it's probably the most, and, and the core of it is know the truth, be the light, and find your way. And this is something that has taken me about, this has been my journey to get, you know, words are very powerful. To be able to enunciate and articulate that so everyone gets it. So first of all, I think it's giving the vision to people of what we already are. 
And, it, and that, in my view, and, and I think the view of all the spiritual traditions, each one of us is a spark of God. And the purpose of life is to connect with your creator in a direct way. And nothing was supposed to get into that process. So when I talk about truth, freedom, and health, it begins with freedom. Freedom means the ability for each individual to be able to have discourse, connection with other human beings in a free manner without government intervention, Facebook, Google, and three telco companies controlling it, for example, which is what we have now. Um, and if you can have freedom, it becomes the basis for doing scientific inquiry, which means asking a question, why does that apple fall from the tree? Whoa, why does, when my grandmother looks at someone's face, is she able to heal them, right? By understanding certain patterns on their face or she can identify things. So the scientific method, which was also the method of the Siddhars, by the way, is that you ask a question, you make a guess, then you test things, you gather data, and you go through this very humble process called the scientific method. However, if you don't have freedom, you end up through what is called scientific consensus. 99% of the people say the sun goes around the earth. One guy has data. It doesn't matter. He's destroyed. And then you build scientific consensus. You know, CO2 is a pollutant. Meanwhile, they pass the Paris Accords, which has nothing to do with lowering pollution. It actually allows China to double their pollution. Meanwhile, everyone's running around thinking something got solved when we actually allow pollution to take place and so on. But with freedom, we can have scientific inquiry. And with scientific inquiry, real inquiry, we can get to truth. And But our scientific institutions today, the academics like the old Brahmin priesthood have become the oldest profession now in the world. They don't practice science. They practice scientific consensus. So it's not, it's not even deserving to be called ritual at this point. It's beyond, it's nothing. It's yeah. insanity. I mean, the, our institute is on the 65th year now. And, you know, we, we have results all the time. But people say, what is your scientific? Uh, yeah, what our scientific is, is thousands and thousands of people healing disease and fighting aging and, and waking up, you know, liberating themselves. I mean, oh, yeah. so let's, let's explain Dr. Shiva, how corrupt science is. You're a scientist, I am. Tell people, we call it checkbook science. Somebody comes with the answer and says, I'm gonna give you the money to make that answer come true. Yeah, so I think it's corrupt in a number of ways. Um, Brian, when I, you know, I don't know if you know, I, may, I don't know if I shared this in this discourse, but I didn't know about MIT until literally two weeks before uh, it happened, okay? So my mother, my, my dear mother, who was an amazing woman, she would always be helping everyone. So she had met these two Indian women, one of them who was getting divorced. And you know, Indians aren't supposed to get divorced. It's, it's massively against Indian culture in New Jersey at a shopping mall. She invited them to stay in our, we had a basement, one bedroom, little apartment. My mom would you know, have people stay. She said, you can stay there. Well, one of the, the uh, her, her friends came over and he, and he said, you should apply to the school. And I remember I was a number one kid in Livingston out of 4,000 kids. And no one told me about MIT. So this guy came and he said, you should apply to this place called MIT. Exactly. And the thing was, I was in, think about being the number one math kid. I invented the first email system while working in, in Newark, New Jersey. We, we should talk about that if we want. But anyway, I was an extraordinary student. No one told me about MIT. I wanted to actually be in, do art and be, do carpentry. And I'd applied to, I think, Princeton and uh, one other school. So no one told me about this, no advice. So, so this guy shows me this book and it says Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I looked at this and I said, wow, it looks like a mental institute, right? The big dome. And I wasn't going to apply. But my initial reaction, Brian, Anna Marie, is I didn't want to go to this place. 
However, however, he came literally, I think two days before the application was due. And he said, I'm not going to leave until you fill this out. So I took a pencil and I filled it out. Yeah. Applied, I got in. And I remember my mom and I came to MIT and I saw this place walking up the steps of 77 Mass Ave and people look sick. You saw these kids wearing these huge backpacks, you know, big glasses, right? They looked unhealthy. A 17 year old kid looked like he was 70 years old. And I said, what's that? You were an athlete. I was an athlete and, and this didn't feel right. So I wasn't going to go. And then my high school teacher, because I found out later the high schools get better ratings based on where the kids go. She said, oh, yeah, after all of this, she goes, my son's there. You should go. OK, he did his Ph.D. there. So but she goes, you will like Boston because it's considered the Athens of the world. And when she said that, Brian, what, why I came. So from when I came to MIT, what did I do? I had enough credits from AP credits to graduate MIT in two years. I was more interested in systems. And I studied with, a, you know, I, I want to understand why the caste system existed. So I studied with a guy called Noam Chomsky. I don't agree with everything Chomsky. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so Noam, and, so, but he, you know, I, I unraveled the Indian caste system. I became an activist on campus. Uh, I, there's a picture of me burning the South African flag on the steps of MIT when I organized one of the biggest protests because MIT had investments in South Africa. I organized the food service workers. I became an activist because I was more interested in understanding why was there oppression from my own background from the caste system, Brian. So and you're 18 and 19 years old when you're doing this. Yeah, I'm 17, 18, 19 years old. Right. And um, and then that's when I started uh, understanding, you know, Jesse Jackson, if you remember, was running in 84 against Reagan and Mondale. And I said, wow, this guy looks like he's anti-establishment at the last minute. He sells out the whole movement, you know, the lesser of two evils, and he gives all of his votes to Mondale. And that's when I realized both of these political parties were completely, you know, against the American people or didn't care about people. They were just Tweedledee and Tweedledum. And I wanted to learn from a systems perspective. So that's so that's what I learned at, at MIT. You know, I, I got my bachelor's degree, right? I went in and out, started, you know, did four other degrees, but it was understanding systems, Brian. And one of the things was I learned that the MIT was part of the military industrial academic complex. And as you unravel MIT, what you find is that in the 19, you know, there was a time in this country when we had science at the edges, you know, innovators in their hobbying stores, like I built email or young Philo Farnsworth created the first TV in a small farm in Franklin, Idaho. That's where innovation used to take place. In fact, science you would have to go get, you know, find people to support you in communities like private funders. But then after the Manhattan Project and after Sputnik went up, we had the consolidation of science, what we call big science, big academia. The president of MIT, Vannevar Bush, uh, spun out after he was a president, a company called Raytheon, which is the missile company, right? So you had big science, big academia, something like the NIH went from a $100 million funded institution to a $20 billion funded institution with Fauci and these guys run. So you saw the essentially big science, big academia. The Mansfield Amendment gets passed in 1970, which basically says that basic sciences research, which was a small piece of the military budget, which was a lot of money in those days. They was, I mean, it was sort of an irony. Militaries to give money away to sort of all sorts of wacky research. They didn't care. But after the Mansfield Amendment, it said you couldn't fund basic sciences research unless it wasn't for weaponry. So all that basic sciences research went under two political organizations called the NIH and the NSF. 
And that's where you saw the complete destruction of science because the scientist who actually was, was truly wanting to do great inquiry, ask like, why does the apple fall from the tree, right? Or what is the speed of light? Those guys got thrown out. You ended up hiring salespeople called academics. So the academic could be a mediocre scientist, but he could bring in big money. So the institutions like MIT and Harvard were about growing endowments. So Harvard today has a $50 billion endowment. MIT has a 20 or $30 billion endowments. The presidents were anointed to run based on how much money they brought in, how many buildings they brought in. So science today has fundamentally become pay to play. So if you tell enough scientists, yes, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, the only way to boost the immune system, don't even talk about boosting the immune system, just talk about vaccines, 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 or, yep. right? So you, we have now created, an, uh, Dick Lindzen, who's, um, uh, who's a professor at MIT, he was the first one to say, look, the I mean, I actually did a video on it, parallels showing how the Paris Accords were a big scam. They have nothing to do with lowering pollution. They encourage China to double their pollution from 11 billion metric tons to 22 billion. So it's no longer left or right. And it's, 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 so if I come out and I say, look, the Paris Accords are horrible, people call you a right winger. If I say Monsanto, uh, genetically engineered foods are horrible, you're considered a left winger, you see? So it's not about left or right anymore. So we live in this very- They have everyone the buttons, they know how to press everyone's buttons. Boy, this is a stimulating conversation. Everyone hold in there, we're gonna take a short break. We're gonna be right back. And I'll continue here, Brian, and just let me know when people are back. So everyone, we're, we're talking with Brian Clement and his uh, wonderful wife, Anna Maria from Hippocrates. If people don't know what Hippocrates is, you should check it out. Hippocrates is an amazing institute where if people are ill or if you wanna get healthier, or if you wanna just learn uh, how to use natural foods and raw foods in particular, plant-based foods, you can learn a lot. Um, but my, as I mentioned, my dad went there. I've known about Hipp Hippocrates for many, many years. And we're having a conversation with Brian about my journey to health and well-being, medicine. And what's great about talking to you, Brian and I'm Marie, Marie uh, I haven't had a conversation like this in a while, is that we're getting back to sort of the essence, the reverence um, for life, um, for um, what I like to say, for those people who are connected to the nuts and bolts of life, the lawyers and lobbyists who run the world. If you really think about it, what a lawyer is, what does a lawyer actually do? They move words. They live in an abstract world where anything can be made right, anything. You can take the most irrational things and through words and manipulation of words, you can make things right. But if you have to live with the essence of growing something, you know, harvesting um, that, uh, uh, you know, what you put in your body or you have to be a plumber or an electrician or an engineer, there's no, more issues about what you think is right or what you yeah. want to make right. It's about what is right and what is real. So that's what we're talking about. This, Dr. Shiva, but it is clear that there's people who try to control things and then there's people who observe and honor and respect the universe. It's that simple. There's just two kinds of people, people who manufacture reality and people who honor reality. And that's what we're talking about. And, and sadly, uh, the people that manufacture it uh, have taken over. We're going to come right back now. This is Health, Happiness, and Healing with Anna Maria. And Brian Clement, Hippocrates Health Institute. Today we have Dr. Shiva. Uh, we talked about a whole array of subjects that are not only interesting, but listen closely. 
listen acutely. We're getting down to the essence of where we are today and who you really are. And the extraordinary abilities you have, once you start to get it, once you start to really, really, not intellectualize, but internalize what we're talking about, that there's nothing that stops you. That why humanity suffers today is we don't know who we are. And we don't employ our godliness. And even religion segregated you and separated you from God. And when they tell you they're teaching you God, they're teaching you ritual and rhetoric. You know how to repeat prayers. You don't even know what they mean. Uh, Governments are supposed to serve you. You're serving governments. And governments are not governments. Governments are working for corporate interests. And as we both agree, Dr. Shiva and all of us, all three of us, Anna Maria and I, uh, there is no such thing as real science. It's so rare to see real science. When we're reading science, we have to look at something called uh, meta-science, where they do 10 or 20 or 100 different studies, and then you have to pick out what each and every one of these research teams discovered, because every scientist is told the outcome when they're doing the study. You may have a different, 100 different outcomes, but thank God they found all 100 of them certain similarities. And even scientists, we have to read between the lines, because nothing is straightforward. Nothing is true. And so what is your motto for your Senate campaign in Massachusetts? And let's talk about it. And go through those three words. We got halfway through them. Yes, sure, Brian. So, yeah, so it's, so I said, if you, if, if everyone wants to draw a little triangle, and if the bottom left vertex is freedom, which we talked about, with, with freedom, we can actually have discourse and we can get to truth. Now, based on what I just shared with you about the nature of the academic establishment, uh, we need, so by the way, in order to exercise freedom, uh, Brian and Anna Marie, I actually have an actual policy, which is called the Digital Rights Act. And I'll come back to that. Let me just go through the triangle and I'll come back to the details. But there's actually a policy that I have that we can get back our freedom. When we go to truth, uh, I've put together something called the Citizens Science Act. You see what happens is we fund billions of dollars out of our tax dollars to, frankly, egomaniacal scientists, okay? I don't even call them scientists, academics. They take our money, they hold our money. They Remember, their goal is they have seven years to get something called tenure, which is basically a job for life with no accountability. Now, how do you get tenure? You have to write papers, and then you have to make sure others cite your papers. It's a complete racket. So in order to get your paper cited, because it doesn't matter you wrote 15 papers, when your tenure review comes up, how did your peers feel about you, okay? So it's all a sucking up model in some ways, okay? It's not about truth. So what you're doing is making sure your community of peers acknowledges you. For example, Einstein did not write one paper peer reviewed. When he submitted one of his last papers, they said, we're gonna send it for peer review, Dr. Einstein. He goes, what are you talking about? He goes, what does that mean? He goes, new research, how can peers review innovative research, because they always want to suffocate it. So what we have is media. Right. So, so, so what we have is science is regression to the mean, which means you regress to the, to the mediocre, mediocre, not anything wild and new. So the way to solve that problem is citizen science act. What that means is if we fund any person in the establishment science to do research, their data is your and my, our data. If they do an experiment, they got to publish it to the cloud. I want to get access to that data. 
I want to do my own research. Everyone knows how to use Excel these days. There's billions of smart people on this planet. So that's something profound. Uh, we can do that today. Now with truth, now with without truth, you can create a fake problem and a fake solution. Oh my God, everyone's got to get vaccinated, right? That's the only way to uh, defeat viruses. So that's what they've created, fake problem, fake solution. But if we have real truth, you found out, you know what? It's an overactive immune system, which attacks our own bodies, for example. So with truth, we can get to real health. And I don't just mean our physical health, but the health of our entire infrastructure. Um, in Massachusetts, Brian and Mary, we have the worst infrastructure in the entire United States, the top three, F minus minus by the American Society of Civil Engineers. We concur with that. Yeah, so, so, and we all know it is infrastructure that has always supported you know, if you want to look at big infectious diseases, it was nutrition and sanitation, all these things that really brought down nutrition, you know, infectious diseases. To, so my view on health, it's called the Health Rights Act. When you look at the vaccine issue, for example, in 1962 is when John Kennedy implemented the National Vaccine Act, which created the Center for Communicable Diseases. Now, his brother, Ted Kennedy, after all these vaccine injuries were being reported, didn't get rid of it. They you know, one of the ways that politicians work is they bring in more regulations. It's a way to consolidate power. So they created the vaccine courts, which basically indemnified the vaccine manufacturers. And let's, let's, let's go slow on this. I think most Americans, if they really understand what we're saying about this, you're going to think we're making it up. But this is all factual. So let's talk about 1987 and how all of this began. Sure. So in 1962 was a National Vaccine Act which was basically created the, uh, the, the, the group within the CDC, which could come up with guidelines for a national va the national vaccine program. Between 1962 to 1986 or 1987, after that was created, parents were reporting injuries because this was a one size fit all model of medicine. You know, traditional systems of medicine, it wasn't one size fit all. Each person was treated uniquely because everyone understood the complexity of the body. But, in 1962, they had a very rudimentary understanding of the immune system. By 1986, injuries are being reported. Thousands of lawsuits are being filed. So instead of taking care of the people, eliminating the 1962 Act, the politicians, Ted Kennedy, who led the charge in the Senate, created another big Band-Aid. And the purpose of that Band-Aid was to protect vaccine manufacturers. So they said, you know what? We're going to rip out a part of the Constitution, which was a separate balance of powers, and we're going to create a vaccine court within the executive branch in health and human services, okay? So what this did was if your child- Let me pause for one minute. And the reason being is the vaccine companies, the pharmaceutical industry came to the government and said, we're gonna stop giving vaccines because we're being sued out of business. So that's what was the impetus behind this from what I was told in 86, Right, well, that was the perceived impetus, right? But it was really the politicians and the lobbyists all worked together. And what's fascinating is a number of people collaborated with that who are quote unquote part of the anti-vax movement will come to that because fundamentally, philosophically, Brian, if you are a revolutionary wanting to change things or do you want to keep things the way they are through legislative means? And this is, there's a physics here. The physics of historical movements that have changed the world was never from the legislature, never from inside out. It was always through people's movements, bottoms up. These people were frankly, the not so obvious establishment. So what they did was that they supported this. And what you ended up was with a big Band-Aid, which no one could ever really pierce the veil and go after vaccine manufacturers. Then since 1986 to now, 
you have the quote unquote anti-vax movement, again, led by people, I hate to say it, and this may bother some people, people like after when I got into this movement, people like Robert Kennedy, who is pro-vaccine, who does want more regulations, he wants to create vaccine safety within the government. And my position on this, a big difference, is this is a difference between people who want to keep things the way they are, what I call the not so obvious establishment, versus people want to fundamentally change things was, look, the entire 1962 vaccine mandate should go away. Why? Because as a scientist, the immune system is a very complex system. We need to decentralize healthcare to the edges, back to the practitioner and the individual. Government should not be involved in regulating any of this. So, or marriage or any of the rest of it. How did dare they do that? This is our inherent right. Yeah, and right now, so many people, most people even in our in, uh, neighborhood are just holding their breath, waiting for this vaccine. Oh, if the vaccine be... comes, the world's going to get better. Yeah. And, yeah. And they have no idea the side effects that's going to come, how many people this is going to kill, and what it's going to do in future to their immune system. So tell the listeners, Dr. Shiva, exactly what they put in these vaccines and why... Uh, people should seriously consider what's happening to them now. Yeah, so look, you know, one of the companies, uh, technologies I created out of my PhD work, Brian, you talked about biological engineering. Biological engineering is a field that MIT created in 2003 when the genome project ended, precisely to answer the question you just said, because biology was very reductionist, meaning the best way you can explain the word reductionism is the old story of the six blind men that the king calls to touch an elephant. And each one is touching parts of the elephant and they have a blinded view of reality. The guy who touches the tusk thinks it's a spear. The guy who touches a tail thinks it's a brush and so on. That's reductionism. That's how biology was headed. And, and we found out we only have 20,000 genes, right? We don't have a million genes when the Genome Project ended in 2003, that the number of genes we have is 20,000 the same as a, as a worm. So biology realized, Jesus, you know, we're not heading in the right direction. We don't understand the whole. So this was a good thing. So Western medicine said we need to create a systems biology and, the, and, and a biological engineering, which means not engineer, not uh, biomedical engineering, which is device, but biological engineering to take an engineer's approach to understanding the whole body. That's when I came back to MIT in 2003 and I ended up creating a technology, Brian and Anna Maria called Cytosolve. And to me, this was a, a in many ways, a honoring my grandmother who would with mortar and pestle mix stuff. And you asked her how you did this and she can explain it, right? So Cytosol allowed me to use the computer to mathematically model molecular reactions of like a disease state or a normal state. And with Cytosol, I could test different chemicals, compounds, and I could figure out their toxicities and the risks. And we can talk more about that. So when I looked at this, I said, wow, pharma guys would wanna use this because they're spending so much time killing people and we could save animals, but they weren't really interested. In fact, uh, I've put a, a challenge at any vaccine manufacturer should, we can figure out the toxicity and validate it with Cytosol. So the issue is, Brian, we don't even know what's in their vaccines because of the patents, right? They don't even have to tell all the substances, but we do know typically it's a deadened form, what they call attenuated form of the virus. Um, uh, and, and, and just to go back a little bit, the way the, the concept of vaccines, believe it or not, comes from natural healing, right? You expose yourself, you expose yourself to the pathogens. In an Indian village, for example, with one animal got a disease or something, they would have that animal sneeze into something and they would give it to all the other animals quickly because you wanted to strengthen that animal quickly. 
when people got chicken pox, we, we, we said, this is great. Go have chicken pox parties, right? Or, we bring our kids over there, so they got it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And in fact, when my, Michael Jordan played, played basketball with a flu, people said, oh, isn't this great, right? In the 70s, 80s, right? However, pharma uh, and the entire fake science, let's go back to that, they created this mythos that the immune system is so weak, it can't handle this. Therefore, the model was to give an attenuated form of a, of a pathogen and inject it into people. And based on that injection, we were gonna mimic the body's natural immune response. Now, here's the problem with it. While your immune system is not just the injection of something into you, you actually have a very complex immune system. And I was, in fact, in November, I gave the prestige lecture at the National Science Foundation on this, um, where I shared from a systems approach, we have the innate immune system to everyone listening. That's a part of your body that it first comes in touch with a, a virus that comes in through your eyes, your nose, you know, your mucous membranes, and your body has a whole infantry to combat that. Then you also have the interferon system, which is a missing link uh, of a whole bunch of other amazing molecules that is actually awaiting viruses so it can protect you against thousands of other viruses. We have the adaptive immune system, which produces antibodies. Then we have the amazing microbiome, which we're only starting to unravel, which is in our gut, the virome, the gut-brain axis. So anyway, the bottom line is we have a very complex immune system. And within that framework, when a pathogen comes, what we're doing is we're supposed to turn on all of these in a natural way. Instead, what the vaccine guys have done is, I'm gonna take a little, uh, a little, um, uh, version of that and inject it into you, which means you're obviating your natural processes. So your body never has a chance to turn on the adapt innate, innate immune system. You're short circuiting it. And your body can now have, for some people, a range of inflammatory responses. But with the attenuated vaccines, Brian and Marie, they weren't getting the response. They said, oh, it's not working. So then they said, let's add other stuff, mercury, aluminum, right? Polysorbates, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, other things. And the reason they were adding that was they weren't getting the immune reaction that would have normally occurred. So they were trying to mimic nature, just like genetically engineered foods. And they've, uh, this is a very complex thing to do because we don't understand all the reactions. We only understand two. It's not, it's not only complex, Dr. Shiva, it's impossible, impossible for people who have lost the sense of their heart. It's impossible for people who don't really understand what's where they are. And the extraordinary beauty of this, I mean, it must, it must have been revolutionary in your own mind and soul when you found a way to met on a computer to mimic the systems of the body. And, and then it's denied. And as you probably knew this going in because you're politically savvy, they wouldn't use this because it would, it would so clearly indicate what was going to work and what didn't work. Is that why you did the work on the genetic soy? Yeah, that's what I did. I said, so what I did was um, I did I did a talk on this a couple of um, days ago. So when I created Cytosolve, you know, um, my advisor and I, when we created a company, we said, wow, pharma would want to use this. But they had no interest, Brian. In fact, we uh, had a the innovation group at Pfizer came to us. They said, can you use Cytosolve to basically they were very interested in would our mathematical models mimic the stuff in a test tube. And right in the middle of it, suddenly the two senior scientists just left. So we were sort of left hanging. But the issue is you would think pharma would embrace this, right? Because we could, but, the, but they don't. In fact, I put out the challenge that anyone uh, wants out there, if we can find all the stuff in vaccines, we could run it through cytosol. But I did have the opportunity 
uh, in 2014, I was walking down MIT's hallway and I saw this big, you know, MIT's most prestigious magazine is called Technology Review. Um, I was on the front page for inventing, you know, one of the systems for analyzing email many years ago. But on that front page, there was an article which says, buy fresh, buy GMOs, Brian and Anna Murray. Think about that. They were making fun of the buy fresh, buy local movement. And at the bottom of that, the subtitle was how we needed, you know, Hillary, the Hillary Clintons and the, uh, the Clinton Global Initiative and the Gates Foundation, because they were going to bring, you know, uh, genetically engineered foods to all the dark people in the world, because we so need the, the, the white man to come in and help us to learn how to farm. Okay. Forget, forget about the fact that Squanto and all these people actually helped the pilgrims. Okay. But nonetheless, um, so that was, and I was reading this and I said, this doesn't make any sense. And because remember, these people are very clever that what I call the not so obvious establishment, they always do the PR. We're always helping the dark people or the poor people or the women, right? They always wrap that rhetoric into it. Like the, so, so what I did was I said, okay, let's use Cytosol to find out what's going on here because the narrative was that a genetically engineered food is exactly the same as the orga organic equivalent, okay? And it's called the policy of substantial equivalence, which the FDA allowed as a basis of determining if a, a GMO could go to the market. So you as a GMO manufacturer, let's say you wanted to make a GMO blueberry, all you had to do was inform the FDA, look, I've looked at certain characteristics and you got to choose the characteristics, Brian and Anna Marie. You could say the color, the amount of protein and the amount of water, three criteria. And if you said, well, you know, I looked at the non-GMO and the GMO and they're about plus or minus 20%. You just inform the FDA. The FDA, by the way, has, does not have a policy on GMOs. They have an arm's length. And then they say, okay, you can go to market. So what I did with Cytosol was I said, let's model the metabolic pathways of plants. So I went through 6,000 pieces of curated literature, literally modeled all the molecular reactions of plant metabolism. And then we did a series of five papers, Brian, and we showed very methodically that when you perturb, we use soy because 97% of the soy in the United States is genetically engineered. And we showed that when you perturb the soy plant with this genetic insertion of a gene from a bacterium, what it actually does is this very complex system starts producing formaldehyde, accumulating it because you, the plant is basically in what we call a disturbed state. So it uses up its glutathione levels. And so our model predicted that glutathione levels in a soy plant would be 250% less. I mean, in a genetically engineered plant yeah. than the, but so anyway, we published that. We got a lot of heat from Monsanto. Cancer causing right. So one is a formaldehyde, but fundamentally the plant itself is a weaker plant. It's like a big bodybuilder on steroids, but his testes have shrunk, right? That kind of thing. So, yeah. We have to remind everybody that GMO-free is not organic. It needs to be organic and GMO. -free. Exactly, exactly. So now, now you, pub you publish this. It's, it's actually evidential science. This is real science, not fabricated what they did. And what was the result of that? Well, what we found was that the genetically engineered soy had our models, are, you know, these very powerful mathematical equations predicted would have 250% less glutathione. So when we were attacked by that, Brian, by the Monsanto shills at various of these academic institutions. They said, oh, this is just a mathematical model. It doesn't mean anything. Fortunately, Brian, we got very, very lucky. There was a group in Leeds in UK, which had actually grown the soy plant. 
in, in, in you know, the Roundup Ready soy and the organic soy. And guess what they found? Same thing. It had 250% less glutathione. The power of Cytosol was we had all the, the mechanistic understanding why, how those pathways get perturbed. So, and the way they attacked me, Brian, was not to even talk about the math or the physics. They said, oh, he didn't invent email. That was their attack. <laughs> We're going to be back in a minute. This okay. is a great conversation we're having. We'll be right back. Just okay, and I'll continue here. So anyway, everyone, I'm having a conversation with Brian Clement. We're talking about food, medicine, uh, the power of Cytosol. Um, you know, my deep interest in Brian and Anna Marie's interest in health and well-being, about the corruption of the academic establishment. While I'm waiting for them, I wanted to just share with everyone the fact that I am running for U.S. Senate if people want to go here. Okay, I guess I had it here. I'm gonna to have to start it up again. Let me start over here. Um, if people go to shivaforsenate.com, um, I haven't uh, done this today. It's important that I do this each day so everyone knows that I am running for Senate so you guys can support the campaign. If everyone goes here, this is our US Senate campaign. Um, and as people know, I'm running for Senate. Our, our campaign's model is truth, freedom, and health. And one of the key things that we're doing as a part of our campaign is to educate everyone on, on what is a system and the power of system thinking and how you can understand the body as a system. And I'll be talking about with this, Brian, when we come back from the break. But if you really study what we're doing here, one of the key things that I'm, uh, if you go to, um, uh, let me go back here. If you go to Shiva for Senate, one of the key things that we're doing here is to teach people how the body is a system. So those people who support the campaign, as I'm showing here, I we give you an extraordinary book called System and Revolution and also, a very cool tool called Your Body, Your System, where you can actually understand how your body is a system. And it's based on systems principles where you can actually answer a set of questions, you can figure out your body's own homeostasis, your natural system state, how uh, you know poor uh, activities, or if you're, if you're disturbed in certain ways, how your body is disturbed from your natural system state, and how foods and supplements can bring you back to you. So. This is one of the cool things that I uh, also do separate from uh, running for U.S. Senate. But the whole goal of the campaign is integrated into truth, freedom and health. But part of it is we're offering people tools that you can actually use for yourself to understand how the body is a system. So anyone, by the way, if you have issues with economic distress and you can't support the campaign uh, with 25 bucks, whatever, uh, donate whatever you can and we'll make we'll still make it happen for you. But anyway, go to shivaforsenate.com. It's a great site. You can contribute in many different ways. You can volunteer. But the basis of our campaign is truth, freedom, and health. Okay, here we go. This is Health, Happiness, and Healing with Anna Maria. And Brian Clement. So today we're speaking to Dr. Shiva. And Dr. Shiva, uh, we've taken a universal approach today. We talked about everything from his youth, his childhood, and how he was surrounded by extraordinary people who lived the way probably everyone did for thousands of years before. And how he was whisked up and brought to the United States. And one of the most uh, interesting parts of the conversation is the family couldn't believe that people, and unfortunately wealthy people, had so many uh, sadnesses and sorrows because they had no friends. And they were fighting with their husbands and wives and they weren't in touch with their family. We'd have to pay psychologists and psychiatrists to befriend them. And that was an enigma. 
you know, you would never have done this in the culture where the community uh, was always there. The family was already there. Well, there probably were elders that would be the psychiatrist. You'd go to them. You'd go to grandma. You'd <laughs> yeah. go to some, some guy that doesn't know you and expect them to love you. <laughs> and you pay them on top of that. All that. It's like prostitution as far as I'm concerned. And then we, we went into uh, what, what, what has happened, you know. One of the things, people are in awe of science, you know, because as soon as you hear the word science, you become subservient. You know, so 95% of the public just say, oh, science, that means they're smart. Uh, and what we've exposed, which we completely concur with, is that science is an outright fraud. I think it's probably one of the worst frauds that has ever been conducted by the human race in the history of humanity. And it shouldn't be. We love science. What it is science? Be. It's a study of it. It's analysis. I know. Sci science, it, true science is you never come up with the hypotheses and think it's, it's the definitive. You know, it's it made a religion out of science, and it's not, you know, a dogma out of science. And how they've corrupted. Now we're going to get into what's happening to all of you, any of you listening out there. Uh, you've been locked into your homes all over the world, and your governments are telling you, uh, we're going to we're going to save you. We're going to give you vaccines so that uh, Bill Gates and others. And we're uh, going to make it mandatory. They're mandatory. They're, they're going to they're going to be the saviors here so that they can make their burgeoning bank accounts grow. And a lot of you, we're losing you now because you say, well, that couldn't happen. There couldn't be this much evil in the world. Uh, oh. it, there's so much good in the world. There's a handful of evil people that you've turned your lives over to. That's the problem. Yeah. It's mostly good. Almost everyone I know is loving and whole and complete and happy and, and contributory. But we've let these insane people, and it's your fault and my fault, and Dr. Shiva, tell us exactly what you know about this plan uh, to take over the economy as well as people's lives and bodies. Yeah, Brian, good question. You know, uh, about, uh, you know, I've been a student of politics, Brian, as much as I've been a student of medicine and med systems. Um, the important thing to understand is there are three forces in political movements that I've uncovered. And I'm a system, I'm a student of revolutionary movements. I've studied, you know, Indian revolutionaries, American revolutionaries, Marx and, uh, you know, Cuban revolutionaries. And it's interesting because um, uh, people have immediate reactions when you talk about different people, right? But I look, I take it in a very, very systems approach, you know, in a very objective approach. But the, the, the physics of this that I've uncovered, Brian, is there are, forces, there's really three forces. You can almost look at it as, you know, force, matter, and acceleration. One of the forces that exists is what I call the inertia of the establishment, right? The existing guard on one side. Um, in fact, the establishment has two forces, but it's what I call the obvious establishment. On the other side, there are the people, the change agents, people who come bottoms up, Brian, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, working people, bottoms up who want a better world for themselves and their family. Now, when those people start moving independently, what invariably happens is the establishment doesn't try to crush them, Brian. You know who tries to crush them? The establishment has a wing called the not so obvious establishment. I call them the NSOE, okay? And these are very clever. What they do is they don't just crush movements that come bottoms up. They send these people out who speak the rhetoric, Brian, and this is the insidious nature of the establishment who talk about revolution and, you know, healthcare and I'm against vaccines and whatever, you go down the list, okay? 
but they exist to manipulate people off the streets. When I mean off them building up independent movements to give their power away to some celebrity, some Kennedy. And I have to use these because you'll understand why, because it's been happening in this anti-vaccine movement. And unfortunately what's happened is if you call them out, you're considered someone who's splintering or dividing people up. When what you're doing is you're pointing out something historical when you study movements. In the Russian revolution, for example, Brian and Anna Maria, there were movements arising bottoms up. You know what the czar did, the obvious establishment? He said, no, 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 you don't need to protest and build, come over to this thing called the Duma, which was a legislature that they created, Brian and Anna Marie, to take the steam out of people. In India, the same thing occurred. As people were rising up and wanting a good revolutionary movement to kick out the British, you know what the British did? They flew in this guy called Gandhi. And he wasn't a nice guy, he was a racist in South Africa. He was brought in, you know, by the way, they always make these people look good and they created the Indian National Congress to take people off the streets to get together and let the steam off. And India, what ended up happening had a transfer of power. That's what the document was called. It wasn't called the Indian Declaration of Independence. They transferred power from white men with crowns to brown men with white hats. Now this may be hard for people to swallow, but that's the force of the not so obvious establishment. That's what occurs. So what happens is 70 years, India, 80 years, India had massive corruption. Modi was the first, and, and they had a dynasty. It went from Nehru to his daughter Indira to their son, you know, Rajiv and so on. No different than the British Raj. But this is a way they manipulate people and people say, oh, everything's okay. No, it's not okay. So I want to point this out because this is one of my, you know, sort of discoveries that I've made just as much as a discovery of an immune system or cytosol or system's health. It's a discovery that the not so obvious establishment is a true enemy of the people. And when people figure this out, Brian, that's when change occurs. And if we don't figure it out, we, we prolong human suffering. If you look at the American anti-war movement for years, you know, people were, you know, being counterculture and thinking that the left wing of the Democratic Party was anti-war against Goldwater. Well, they were both pro-war, pro-Vietnam. Lyndon Johnson had machine guns on the stage of the Democratic Convention. He was beating people outside the convention after the bombing of Cambodia. And in 1968 is when people said, oh, my God, both of these guys are horrible. And then literally two years of war ended when we broke from both parties. So my point is this. When you look at the current movement that's taking place, before I got involved, Brian, it was owned by, frankly, an elite of the Hollywood, you know, talking anti-vax. They lost in California. They lost in New York. And I said, wait a minute. It's not just Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci. It's also Hillary Clinton. And the quote unquote Democrat establishment of Bobby Kennedy said nothing against him. And when I exposed him, the response was quite amazing, Brian. People, Bobby Kennedy published an article calling me a vaccine maker. I was in bed with Bill Gates, the Hitler model of big lies, and I got money from the Clintons. When if anything, I'm so far from the truth. So the reason I wanna educate people is it's not the establishment, Brian, the Gates, that's easy. I've hit them really hard. I started the Fire Fauci campaign. We got 100,000 signatures. It's them, but the not so obvious establishment. And when people get that in the world, in this country, I'm telling you, change will occur fast. But if we don't get that dynamic, we will be fooled. And if you look at Shakespeare, if you look in the Bible, you will always see it was Judas who gave away Christ, okay? It wasn't the Romans, okay? It was with a kiss. Many of the Christians say the Jews killed Christ. It was a Roman that did it. I mean, it's outrageous. I mean, we, well, no, I'm saying, but Judas is the one who gave away Christ. You see what I'm saying? Exactly. His own, so the person acting, speaking the rhetoric of Christ, and that's what happens in political movements. 
And I think I have a perspective on this because I don't owe anything to any of these people. I'm an, you know, my parents are untouchables from India. You know, I came from working class neighborhoods. So you're not supposed to attack. It's easy to expose Gates and Fauci, but we also need to understand that in the United States, the modern Kennedys have become institutionalized, not so obvious establishment. You know, Joe Kennedy here, who I'm running against is pro-vaccine. Bobby Kennedy raised money for him. So how can you, and but we're taught, oh, that's okay. You see, we give away our rational authority to this culture. We've talked about this culture of where we separate people from each other, but we've also created this decadent culture. Oh, if you're Hollywood and if you're Kennedy, that's okay. You're allowed to go do all of that. And that hypocrisy is what contains movements. It's not just the fact that people have given away their power. It's also the fact that people have given away their power to the wrong people. And when people let's make this simple to understand for the people, what you're saying is absolutely clear and, and I believe correct. That what we have is we have the the alternative, and so the alternative may or may not be as bad as what you're trying to get rid of, but they're certainly not revolutionaries. They're certainly not aspiring for the ch change that you're looking for. It's just one guy is so bad. You're taking the guy that appears to be a little, thinking a little bit more like you, but frankly, they're not going to change anything. And you nailed it, Brian. Yeah, you nailed it. And, and I'm saying that mechanics is created by the establishment. It is not something that is done accidentally. So if you look at the, just go back to the current vaccine movement, you had John Kennedy who created the National Vaccine Act. Now, if you want to give him the benefit of the doubt, it was done on a very nascent understanding of the immune system which was this two box model. Well, by the time the injuries were showing up, we should have gotten rid of that. And the fundamental principle here is, as we just shared, it's impossible to understand the me mechanisms of the body. It's a complex system. And medicine has to be an information science and an art. Someone needs to be able to interact with their practitioner and, and the truth of their health emerges from that interaction. That's where real medicine occurs. It wasn't my, my grandmother was healing the person. It was the interaction of the shaman and the person to be healed through that interaction health emerge. So the bottom line is, it's not as easy to say the practitioner, the poor practitioner today, the medical physician, the osteopathic physician, they are manipulating control. If they step out of line, they actually lose their license or worse than that, their life. So, exactly. You know, so what kind of practitioner, I mean, how are we going to, how are we going to change this system that is so, uh, dirty, so rotten, so disgusting, so anti-human. How are we going to change this? What kind of a revolution? We obviously don't want a blood revolution. What kind of a revolution can we have so people can be liberated? Yeah, Brian, when I talk about revolution, you know, I did a quote of Marx. Uh, he was one of the first persons. He didn't get everything. He got a lot of things wrong, actually. But he was one of the first people to try to understand what is a revolution. And I wrote a book called System and Revolution. By the way, it's uh, and my attempt was to look at Marx. You know, Newton wasn't a nice person either. Neither was Einstein. Okay, neither was Shockley who created the transistor. So putting that aside, you know, what I do give credit for Marx was he was the first guy who was understanding that changes occurred in society What he at these inflection points, right? So you had hunter-gatherer societies, and then we had the plow come and we created the feudal societies, but it was these important sort of phase changes. So my definition of revolution is when a phase change occurs, no different than at a certain point, you know, ice melts 
to water. At a certain point, water bubble uh, at, at the right heat, it becomes steam, right? So I believe. So I believe that if you move the molecules at a certain point, a phase shift occurs. And to me, the phase transition, sorry. And that phase transition in this case occurs when you educate people and you make people conscious that the revolution comes when you have enough particles getting it, you create a wave. And that's what I've been trying to do with all my videos, Brian. If I can educate people, wait a minute, it is not a virus that harms us. It's not a pathogen. We have 380 trillion viruses within us. It is a weakened and, and dysfunctional immune system caused from social isolation, right? Uh, years of abusing the body, environmental toxins, et cetera. So if we can educate people on that, they go, wait a minute, that means I have control of my immune health. That means what am I putting into my body? That means who am I electing into office? Who's screwing up my water supply, et cetera. This now becomes the consciousness change. Now, hopefully it doesn't have to be bloody, right? We hope it isn't. And, and if enough of us start vibrating, it doesn't have to be. So that... Obviously, you're putting a lot of... You have a million followers, putting a lot of social media. How often do they take it down? And do they actually alter... Yeah, so, so, yeah, yeah. so w when I... By the way, when I uh, started attacking some of these not-so-obvious establishment people, they said, oh, Shiva's volume has grown. He doesn't get censored. I've been taken... So my videos get taken down from YouTube. Uh, in Twitter, for example, I posted vitamin C therapy. I said, vitamin D is something proven for anti and microbial behavior. It was taken down. I was put in Twitter jail. So what I attempt to do, Brian, is I attempt to always put everything from the biological systems framework because th then I have an unfair advantage on them because whoever's sitting in Philippines or India taking the mandates of some Google person, they can't understand me. <laughs> okay. So... So I've been taking a systems approach. So when I discuss vitamin D, I, I draw out all the molecular pathways of the catholicidins. And I say, look, this is where vitamin D hits and I bring together all the literature. So that's the approach I've been taking. Stop there for a minute. The catholicidin actually is a protein that activates something that kills viruses. Explain this to them. Yeah, so, so what's extraordinary, like, when, and, and uh, Brian, you, just a point that you made is the unfortunate problem with MDs is they are actually victims of a big pharma medical system or medical system that doesn't even train them on the uh, immune system, doesn't train them on nutrition. But if you actually look at something like vitamin D, you get vitamin D obviously from UVB radiation from the sun, you can get it from nutrients. Let's say you take the supplements called caliciferol. But what vitamin D fundamentally does, if you go down to the molecular level and you map out all these molecular pathways, all the molecular reactions, which I've been able to do, that the vitamin D actually turns on at the cellular level, it creates a chemical or protein called catholicidins. Catholicidins are a like bullets, which literally pierce the walls of fungi, bacteria, parasites, and viruses. So they break up the cell walls and that basically lyses them. And it's, it's so if vitamin D is like your musket, you know, the the you have 50 to 100 trillion cells has a receptor site for vitamin D. We're actually having people, we have a plant-based form that comes from a vine, much stronger than anything else. We take the powder out of the capsule, a little bit of good oil, we put it in their nostrils because there's where the most activated is to prevent this virus and other viruses. Yeah, I mean, in traditional systems of medicine, 
they did a methodology which was putting the oils up through your nose. So, um, and those oils were infused with other herbs, et cetera. And so, you know, delivery through the nose is one of the highest bioavailability um, methodologies. But the bottom line is vitamin D, which is the sun, this beautiful thing we call the sun, which everyone has access to, was created. That's why we're in Florida. <laughs> right, right. And, and, um, and so, you know, I put, you know, I, when I put that out, I, I, I believe I did a tweet and it was taken down. And I, first time I ever got taken down from Twitter, you know, when I started talking about this, you know, t thrown in Twitter jail. I did another one on vitamin C. Um, but so what I've started to do, because basically we're fighting a media war. The advantage I have, Brian, is I am an MIT PhD in biological engineering. I have access to Cytosolve. So I have been moving the discussion to a playing field that they can't compete with me on, which is I go down to the molecular mechanisms. What are you going to talk about there? You don't even know what I'm saying, but I can use... Right, I, but I can use that articulation through my videos to educate people. So that's what's been valuable. And I think we need to be warriors and fighters and we need to be clever than the enemy. That's why I'm saying part of this is actually learning to be a fighter. And the army of love, as you said, physicians, the healers were the fighters. And that's true. We're back at that place now. And I mean, you've done such an amazing job. Anyway, everybody that we told that we're talking with you today, they're like, oh my gosh. Yeah, so you're obviously influencing <laughs> people in some way. You're shaking Everywhere. Feedback. In Europe, all over. You know? So here's, yeah. here's what... Yeah, yeah, one of the things, we get a lot of calls from all over the world, and everyone likes truth, freedom, and health. People are taking our truth, freedom, and health ideas and putting it out. Someone just on a poster in New Jersey on a telephone pole. People are saying, go watch these. So our stuff is going offline. I saw people holding up truth, freedom, and health down in in um, Hawaii. So it's really cool, Brian, because and, and Anna Maria, because what it's almost like you've created a wave, and people have been waiting for the truth, but bottoms up. You know, the people who've been in these movements, the quote unquote new age people, have been owning these movements, and just like in some ways, like Big Farm, I hate to say it, they've been taking advantage of people in a different way, and you know what I'm saying? It's like the and and I think Michael Moore just did different cults, these damn cults. Why don't they give people the ability to think on their own, feel on their own, speak on their own? And that's true truth and freedom. Not this I joined the club that right. I'm tired of the club. When people come to Hippocrates this year, the last thing we want you to do is get behind us. We want you to get behind you. Yep. That's how you heal. I'm not coming home with them. Yeah, Brian, I th I think you nailed it. So the issue is if you go back to that fundamental principle what it means to be a human being versus a robot. I gave this talk because, you know, I, I do a lot of stuff in pattern analysis in the AI field. And in 1994, I used to meditate regularly every day. And in 1994, I had a dream where I woke up literally across from a kitchen table and there was something that looked like me, but I knew it was a robot, right? A across from me. And I, this question went through to me, what, is, what will be the difference between me and a creature? One day we'll be able to produce creatures which talk, mimic everything we do, right? What will be the difference? And the conclusion I came to is the difference between a human being and a robot is that a human being has been touched by love in some fundamental way or death and has asked, who am I? And until someone has had that experience, people who simply cut and paste, simply follow what someone posts on a website, simply wants to give away their power to somebody, they are basically robots. And this is a fundamental question. And, and they better watch because then we become slaves. 
Exactly. So if I put up a picture like when when I you know came on you know exposed a not so obvious establishment, the reaction I didn't get attacked by the establishment, Brian. I was attacked by the not so obvious establishment. How dare you attack Bobby Kennedy as though he's a god? You see what I'm saying? This this shows you how marginal you can be to be a superstar. You just do a little bit better than the one who's doing the worst. You become a hero. And I mean, it takes an extraordinary human being to be human today on the planet. But it's the only way to live. I'm telling you, when I go to my grave, I want to think one last thing. I lived at the highest human level I possibly could. I know you are, Dr. Shiva, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, to me, you know, when I, I mean, the, the greatest opportunity I had was to witness my great grandfather. I can still see him, 93, 94 years old, working out in the fields, ripped. And he used to work so hard, Brian, that he used to cough up blood, you know, pounding away Patty because these people had nothing. And it was just sheer hard work. And those are, yeah, they had nothing, but they had everything. And then I th think back to a, a, a Yugoslavian landscape a painter in New Jersey who taught me how to paint. And he would say, you know, I used to do paint homes with him. And he goes, Shiva, if you're going to work with me, you do jobs with excellence or don't do it at all. It was these yeah. profoundly amazing people who are, who I, who I cherish. And to me, everything's icing on the cake, Brian. So, um, that's who I have great regard for. And I think that message people want again. I think people are tired of being manipulated. People are tired of these so-called leaders top down, no matter how good they look, wearing their whatever they're doing, right? The Hollywood elite or the Kennedy elite, et cetera. People are tired of this nonsense. People want to go back to fundamentals. And the fundamentals are actually pretty, pretty simple, is that each person needs to stand up on their own two feet. Each person needs to build their discernment what we call buddhi in Tamil, which is a word where Buddha comes from, which means common sense. The good news is, I think there's at least more than 51% of the people who still work with their hands, who still you know, farm, who still touch things and connect with things. And that's why I think we haven't gone, we haven't been destroyed yet, but we're at an inflection point in human history. We can go to the golden age or to the dark age. And this entire thing with the pandemic, the entire, um, fear mongering that's been created. The entire goal is to smash economies, right? Uh, and use that annihilation of economies as a gun to our head and saying, I'm sure we're going to see this in September, October. Oh my God, do you want another uh, economic collapse? Yeah. Right? That's where this is headed for. That's yeah. You either go along with the program or you're going to be part of the problem. Uh, in Italy, they were actually taking husbands and wives out of the car and arresting them. Can you if think about it? Driving. They were both together. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine? Only one person. They said the same thing in the state of Maine, and the head of the uh, justice, the legal sheriff's up there, yeah. said, no way. This is America. We're not going to drag people out of the car. We want to do this. This is people don't realize. Mm -hmm. They've had it too comfortable for too long. They're sitting back in their, on their couch watching the fear mongers get them incited, weak their immune system, and basically manipulate them and their family and their community and not doing anything about it. It's time to stand up for yourself. Yeah, Brian, I think one of the things is, is that, you know, in that triangle, it's, it's a circular triangle, right? Without freedom, you can't get to truth. Without truth, you can't get to health. But the last part of that is, if you don't have a strong body or mind, you don't have the will to fight for, your, for freedom. So if you, you know, this entire, I mean, we can have a longer discussion about cannabis, okay? 
The THC of today is 25 times more stronger. I mean, the amount of in these cannabis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, Marlboro has put in 2.1 billion dollars. So you know, my I have you know people I know. Oh, weed is so good. No, it isn't that good because it 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 modulates itself very differently in different people. And and the herb that you're talking about has been hybridized. It's been grown to have high levels of THC. So what I see is I'm almost looking a little bit around. Sometimes you know I talk to my friends. We feel like we're the last of the Mohicans here because when you give the opioids. When you give these high THC drugs, you basically mollify people into saying everything's okay, Mon. No, it isn't okay. Things are not okay. So they did it with alcohol, and then they did it with dope. Yeah. Right. And, and now we have antidepressants. Oh yeah, that's, now they prescribe them to you. Everyone's nuts now. They put you on an antidepressant. Yeah. So and we we're really seeing the last two generations there health is really going down yeah, I mean, big time. We used to see several healthy people a year. You know, we do advanced diagnostic work in our energy medicine yeah. department, elaborate blood tests, and we used to see well, maybe 30, 40, 50 people 50 years ago when I began, and it's 47. Mm. And today, if we see one healthy person every two years, it's, it's, it's stunning to us. Yeah. This is how, and you know, 35-year-old young people, 40% have chronic fatigue syndrome under that age. 57% mm -hmm. of us going to have cancer. Autism, half the children born, right out of MIT, they told us this, Dr. Senna, half the children born in the next five years will be born with some level of autism. And we just sit back taking sucks on a joint or drinks in a bottle or soda, you know, and, 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 and the former head of the FDA told us that literally they're putting synthetic opiates in all of the commercial food to get you addicted to that food. And we are doing nothing about it. Well, we need more people like you. That's for darn sure. Yes, we need a, a whole lot more people like you. So tell everyone uh, how they can help you be a voice of reason, a voice of humanity, a voice of love. Tell them how to get in touch with you. Sure. So, you know, Right now, everyone's wondering, what can you do, right? Obviously, people should stand up. But one of the most profound things I think people can do is our campaign for U.S. Senate, Brian. I never wanted to enter electoral politics. By the way, I never voted until 2016. I have a pure voting record. And I voted for Trump because I saw him as a disruptor. And we should talk about that as one of those phase changes. I don't know him, but he was attacking at least both establishment parties. And we can talk more about that. But fundamentally, I had a clean voting record. And that disruption is what motivated me to run. Um, I'm running as a Republican, but to be very clear, the Republican establishment hates me. They were so upset that I got on the ballot because I actually attacked them. And I don't care for obviously the Democrat establishment. So people should understand that the parties manipulate people. Uh, but what I can tell you is Massachusetts, in my analysis, is the epicenter of the deep state. And I say this because if you look at the one mile radius between MIT and Harvard, and you draw a circle around it, you will see Monsanto is nearby, literally in Kendall Square, Facebook, Google, all the big farm. I mean, they're all right there. You had Jeffrey Epstein who funded both the MIT, um, uh, MIT and Harvard, and both presidents took it after they knew he was convicted. All the global elite come out of the center. My winning, our winning, will for truth, freedom, and health, I believe will be like a nuke went off to the deep state, Brian. So that's what it can mean. So everyone out there should go to Shiva, S-H-I-V-A, for Senate.com. If people are outside of this country, what they should do is tell your friends in Massachusetts to go to our website, support it, donate, volunteer, pledge to vote for us in literally about 100 days. September 1st is a primary.
The other thing is people should recognize that if you're in Massachusetts, you should support the campaign, et cetera. But fundamentally, our campaign, by the way, I'm running against three lawyer lobbyists. Okay. My likely uh, opponent will be Joe Kennedy, who is pro vaccine mandates. His wife actually runs a nonprofit, which is for people of color, which is supposedly a wellness center. This is a new thing, Brian and Anna Marie, but you'll get vaccinated there. Okay. Very clever. At a wellness center. That's what they're doing. And and Joe Kennedy goes, takes pictures with homeless people because he needs pictures of brown and dark people. I don't need those pictures. I have enough in my album already. But that's that's what these guys work at. But that's why I'm saying from a movement standpoint, a, a guy like me who came as an untouchable from India, working class kid winning here for everyone, I'm telling you will be explosive for the world because the deep state does not expect me to win. The Kennedys don't want me to win. This is the deep state Kennedys. I'm not talking about John Kennedy. The establishment doesn't want me to win. But what's happened, John, uh, uh, Brian and Anna Marie, we've created a movement. This, the principles of truth, freedom, and health, digital rights, you know, citizen science rights, and health rights, where we remove all of these mandates. We need to decentralize medicine. We need to back to the edges, which means back to the individual and their and their practitioner. There should, government should not be involved in any of this. They have no right in any of this. And the fact that we even got it this far, it's not because of the establishment. It's because of those not so obvious establishment people who kept saying as well, you can give away that, right? Well, we'll compromise this for you. Well, let's talk to the legislators, write to your congressman. None of that's ever worked, Brian and Anna Marie. Writing to these congressmen, they get your letter, they mark it, and they throw it in the trash. We need to build a bottoms up movement. Well, it's been a privilege and a pleasure to have you on. I hope we can do this in the future and get you on the Hippocrates TV that goes all over the world. Mm -hmm. It's a blessing. We support you. Yes, and thank it's, you. It's very nice to have uh, truth being told in the airwaves. Till next week, everyone lay back and stay awake. Be well. Be well. That's exactly what I say, Brian. Be well. Be the light. <laughs> I know we're like-minded in some ways. A lot of well, we're so grateful for what you do, Shiva. Yeah, keep it up. We'll help yeah. you in any way possible. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to come visit you guys at some point. Or if you're up you here. Yes, you, you have to. to. Come down, welcome you down. And, and maybe uh, if you have the time, we can do some filming. We have a studio now at Hippocrates. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, so we can do filming and that will give you, put you on the internet. Yeah, one of the things, Brian, at some some point, we should run wheatgrass through Cytosol. Or uh, I did a project for two moms in the raw. Um, they were doing sprouted, you know, bars. Um, I don't, uh, but so we did some very cool research for Cytosol showing the fundamental difference between sort of a sprouted almond versus a cooked, you know, roasted almond versus even a raw almond, but the germination. And we have some very, and we did the same with sprouted sunflower, et cetera. But Cytosol is really cool because we can take these things and, and we can do an Aikido move because we can actually show why it's working at the molecular level. And there was an 11th Circuit Court ruling, which was quite favorable, which basically says, separate from RCTs, randomized controlled tests, if you can actually show biological mechanisms of action, that can be used to substantiate and win in court. So Cytosol is really an engine for truth in that sense. Yeah, John Hopkins did this research with uh, broccoli sprouts yeah. and found sulfur famous anti-cancer. I, I, I know you're busy now, but let's, let's hope you get in and then you'll be busy for a few years. But if not, I'm very much up for that because, you know, the next phase would be they'll come after the food. 
Well, Brian, we have to win. I'm telling you, we're at an inflection point. 2020 is an inflection point. We have to win in Massachusetts. It is the utter, utter epicenter of the deep state. So everyone out there, let everyone know that we have to win here. The progressives, and they're holding progress up. Exactly. Exactly. They're the not-so-obvious establishment. The progressives are the not-so-obvious establishment. You nailed it, Brian. And when people get that, we will have changed so fast they would have broken their chains from that nonsense. Yeah. But look at what they, you know, when, when I, and the Kennedys, and Robert, for instance, he did care about the black people. The Democrats, other than maybe Sanders, who was running now, they don't care about the black people. And they, they, they've ex said about them, they're our base. Well, what the hell have they done for these people? I mean, that's simple. I agree with you. Yeah, I, I think you're talking about Robert Kennedy Sr., right? Senior. Yeah. Well, the reality is this. Um, the Democratic Party basically uses minorities um, there in, in India. You have these parties who go to the untouchables and give them free food. Right. Give them a TV, give them a laptop and no one does any more work. Yeah. And the Republicans do with the, the elite, the wealthy. They, they do the same thing. Both establishment parties. Uh, and I, I think the, the important thing is our movement in Massachusetts is actually bringing over independents and Democrats. People are switching parties to support our election. That's what's cool. It is cool. Do you, do you get the progressives to become a Republican for you? You get them somewhere, brother. Well, we are. We, so, so, so number of, I, I've had probably about seven elderly women walk into our office and say, you know, I heard you on this. I saw your thing. I'm not a Democrat anymore. And look, th these parties don't make a difference. In fact, the hardcore Republican establishment don't want me running. So it's not parties. I just have to ride in one of these vehicles. When I try to do it as an independent, they wouldn't even let me get on the debate stage, even though I got all the signatures, everything. So we basically have to figure out our own ways to hijack and win. That's what we're trying to do very openly. Being independent, you have to be in Colorado, Maine, or maybe New Hampshire. Otherwise, you're not going to get elected. You know, they're the only places that the people are open-minded enough. And, you know, it's a shame. Yeah. We love you. Thank you. I love you both. Thank you. Let's keep in touch. I'm so glad we connected. It's been too long. And your dad is, is fine? Yeah, he's good. He had a uh, a valve issue, which he just recently got fixed, as I understand. Um, but otherwise, he's good. I, I'd, I'd really like to send him down there again, you know? Yeah, send him Don't give me a call. We'll get a, uh, make sure we'll get a consultation with him. We'll talk to him about the valve. Okay. Yes, Lauren, thank you so much. Yeah, Lauren Lauren is the one who organized this, everyone. Lauren, thank you so much for reaching out. It was, it was a beautiful connection you made. Yeah, well, we think you're amazing. So I'll give yeah, you a call too. tomorrow and we'll uh, catch up on the other thing. Thank you, Dr. Okay, be well, be the light. Thank you, be well, thank you, bye-bye. All right, everyone, that was a great long talk. That was with Brian Clement and his wife, wonderful people. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Let me see if there's any questions. Jen, are there any questions we want to take from people? Let's see, Jennifer's here. Jennifer, are you there? I guess Jen, Jen is not there. Okay. So anyway, let me see if there's anything on uh, Trump landslide. Yes, oneness is the only way. Not, not no us. You're a warrior. Thank you. Thanks, Shiva. Yes. So everyone, uh, listen. What I want to end by saying is we have a huge opportunity in Massachusetts. Massachusetts is a center of the deep state. And again, I just want to go back here and I want to just 
make everyone aware that if you go to our website, go up there, if you donate to the campaign, whatever you can, I have a book called System and Revolution and Your Body, Your System. Your Body, Your System, which teaches you how your body is a system. It's a way to really understand how inputs and outputs affect us, what your homeostasis is, et cetera. But the most important thing is every one of you who's thinking, what can I do by winning in Massachusetts, our winning, I'm telling you, will be like a nuke went off to the deep state. They would not know what hit them. And we will at least have six years to go at them all day long with, with the prestige of a United States Senate seat. And so that'll be our seat, not just my seat or Massachusetts seats, but our seat. So I hope everyone um, is on board. Please go to the site, support us in whatever way you can. Uh, volunteer. We have groups of people helping us from all over the country, uh, state. If you're outside of Massachusetts uh, and you want to take advantage, you can't donate to our campaign. It's violation of FEC rules if you're outside of the U.S., but you can go to Your Body, Your System and take advantage of the tools there also. Okay. Thank you, everyone. I'm going to go grab some lunch. I'll be back later uh, this evening. Be well.